Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? Um, take your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you've been with us um, through the winter, we have been studying chapter by chapter and verse by verse through 1 Corinthians. If you need a Bible this morning, just raise your hand. I want to get a copy of God's Word in front of you. If you're looking for the passage we're going to be at in the Bibles we're handing out, I think it's page 959 if that's helpful. But um, let's get a copy of God's Word in front of us. Go into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Just as a moment of review, some of you, if you've been here, will remember that as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, we've been going through a lot of different topics or a lot of different issues where Paul is suggesting that even though we have liberties, even though we have rights, in certain cases, it's better to be wronged than to fight for what's right. Back in chapter 6, he talked about this related to lawsuits amongst believers. He talked to it about our liberty and what we eat. And sometimes with younger believers, the issue back in the first century was can, can they or can they not eat food that was sacrificed to idols? That's not a real big issue for us today. I don't see anybody standing at the deli at D&W asking, well, where this meat come from? But, but back then, that was a really big issue. And so there's this constant argument that's being made through chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, sometimes it's better for us to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel. Um, Paul even examples this in chapter 9 when he's talking about the fact that he doesn't even receive pay from the Corinthian church, that he preaches for free so that there's nothing that would be an obstacle in the presentation of the gospel. So we've been looking at kind of this idea for the past few weeks. And what happens in chapter 11 is rather than just talking about how a Christian life should look distinct from the world, he starts to say, what should our lives look like as we gather for worship? So we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians 11. Now, just as a reminder for, for some of you, when I say we're going to preach on 1 Corinthians 11, I've just said we're going to or I'm going to attempt to preach probably the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament. As I was preparing this week, I was listening to a pastor. His name is Dr. Criswell. He was the teaching pastor at First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas for 50 years. He preached there, preached over 5,000 messages. I'm at about 300. And uh, he preached from 1 Corinthians 11 20 times. But only once did he preach from the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, verses 2 through 16. See if you can hear the excitement in his voice as he prepared to preach that morning. subject is how women ought to dress. Can you imagine a preacher in his right mind with all of his faculties getting up and preaching on something like that? But we set ourselves to preaching through the Bible, and we haven't skipped any parts yet. And now that I come to the 11th chapter of the 1st Corinthian letter, I never had so much temptation to skip over something in my life as I did to skip over this. But I said, dear Lord, who helps the ignorant and the foolish, remember me. So we're going to start. We're going to So, So just, can, can you sense the excitement in his voice as he prepares to teach this passage? Now, now a reminder, he preached this message in 1955. So if you can imagine, I don't think it's gotten any uh, easier to preach this in 2019. Would you agree? So our message is not going to be on the topic specifically how women dress. But we've got to deal with this issue that is addressed in 1 Corinthians 11, which is talking on the surface about head coverings. Now, we're going to touch on that issue, but that is symbolic of a greater issue where I want to spend our time this morning. So I'm asking for some grace this morning as I go into this passage. I would say we are going to be looking at um, a portion of scripture that highlights what I clearly believe is the most controversial position that we have as a church. 
and there's going to be disagreement in this room where we land on this topic. There is disagreement on this topic amongst us and some of the other good churches in our community, but it's something that we've got to look at, and my prayer is that rather than be divisive this morning, I think you're going to see something actually quite beautiful in the text, which gives you some reason behind why we take the position as a church that we do. The big idea this morning is this, men and women are both distinct and dependent. Men and women are both distinct and dependent. I'm going to pick it up right in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 1 is actually completing the thought from 1 Corinthians 10 verses 23 through the end of that chapter, but it says this, it says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then in verse 2, it picks up the new topic, and he says this, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I've delivered them to you. So he starts um, thanking the Corinthians that as it relates to when they gather to worship, they've kept the main thing the main thing. And they've got some issues in their church and they're dealing with sin and they're trying to live according to what they believe. But the problem isn't that they have failed to believe the right things. The church has gathered to worship. It's gathered to make disciples. It's gathered to pray. And he's commending them that it hasn't lost its focus on what the church is called to be. And then he says in verse 3, he says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, if you look at just verse 3, what do you think the key word is in understanding verse 3? Can you see it there? The word is head. And it's used three times in that passage, and the Greek word for head is exactly like the English word for head. It's defined by the context in which it is used. So sometimes when you see that word head, it's talking about the physical noggin. Other times it's talking about position, or it can be talking about authority. The way that you define this key word in this text is you've got to look at the context in which Paul is using it, and the context is clear. Look down at verse 10. He says in verse 10, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority over or on her head. In this case, in this context, this idea of symbol of authority, head coverings, it's talking about authority. Just a little more evidence of that. The ESV study Bible notes, it says this, it says, in over 50 examples of the expression, person A is the head of person B found in ancient Greek literature, person A has authority over person B in every case. So this morning, even if we disagree, if we don't like what Paul is saying and is about to say, we cannot agree, but it's very, very hard to argue what he is talking about. And not only is he saying something here, he's declaring it. Look back at the argument. He says the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Those three statements are intertwined. In essence, the way he's presenting the argument is if you disagree with any one of them, then all three must be false. You guys having fun yet? Let's keep going because it's just beginning. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, so now we're getting into when the church comes together and worships, women are to keep their heads covered and men are to keep their heads uncovered. Now, head covered actually means literally in the Greek, down from the head. And as Paul is writing this 2,000 years ago, he's not defining the terms. 2,000 years later, it's hard for us to understand exactly what Paul is talking about, but the audience that was listening to and receiving this letter 2,000 years ago, they didn't have any problem understanding it. It fit within the context of their culture. Down from the head, this head-covered idea, some have interpreted it to mean have wearing your hair down. Others have said it's a veil. Others have said it's a cap or something that you place on top of your head. It's very hard to be definitive on what the text says because it was a cultural consideration, something they would have understood, but it's a little bit unclear to us 2,000 years later. 
Commentary suggests that for a woman to wear her hair long or uncovered would be a symbol that she was single or she was available. That's not true in our cultural context today. Last night after preaching here, Kristen and I went out to dinner with a couple at Two Tonys, and we were waiting in line, waiting for our um, chance to get seated. It was about a half hour wait, and I was watching this table that was kind of just by the entryway. There was nine or 11, I don't remember how it was, but there was an odd number of guys and girls. I think there were four guys and five girls. So as I'm looking at it, it was obvious some of them were couples. I didn't know if it was a gathering, but I'm kind of watching the dynamics of this table. Do you know what? It's impossible for me to tell just by looking which girl went with which guy. Like if they were married or they were couples in first century, you would have seen that the women, if they were married, they would have had a symbol of authority on their head. They would have had a hair covering where the girl that was single may have wore her hair down. We don't have that same cultural situation today. I've never looked at a guy and because he was wearing a hat said oh that guy must be worshiping pagan gods. In the Old Testament or I mean in this time in the first century it, it appears some commentators believe that in Corinth it was common that if a man went into a pagan temple and worshiped a pagan god he would cover his head either with a veil or actually with uh, part of his garment, his, his toga. And what Paul is suggesting here is, guys, when you come together and worship the true God, don't worship him like the pagans do. So it's hard to be definitive on the symbol. That tends to be lost somewhat in cultural context. But the principle behind the symbol remains. And one of the things, or one of the principles is, that as we gather to worship, there should be a distinction in the way men and women appear and the way that they look. Now, I know what I'm saying is not very popular in our culture, but this is not new to our culture. Every culture has struggled with gender identity. This was also true in the first century. And what Paul was pushing here was he's saying, listen, there's a distinction in the way that God created. There is male and female, and that should be apparent, regardless of style or cultural context. It's interesting as we look at this and this becomes a difficult passage and you're like, well, he's talking about head coverings and all of this cultural stuff. You missed in reading verses four, five, and six. In reading it, your focus was on the head covering and you missed the most scandalous thing in the text, I would bet. The most scandalous thing Paul just said was the fact that women were praying and prophesying in church. Like in his context in the first century, that was outrageous for him to say that. That women were praying, they were talking to God, that they were prophesying, they were talking to others about God in the context of a gathering of men and women never happened in the first century. Didn't happen in pagan culture and it didn't happen in the synagogue. Women were put behind a veil or they were pushed out. They weren't members in the synagogue. They had lesser value and Paul is talking about them actually praying and prophesying in corporate worship. Christianity was expanding the bounds of what women were allowed to do in worship in their day. They were by no means restricting it. Let's keep going. Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not uh, made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Boy, this thing just keeps getting easier as we go, right? And, and as you read those verses, I'm assuming that some of the same expressions and eye rolls that I'm getting at the moment is exactly what Paul got when his letter was first written 2,000 years ago. It's interesting, he's not talking about that God is our glory, he's talking that we're God's glory. And let me put this in some sort of context so you understand. One of the ways that you know that there is a great artist is he paints a great painting. If there is a painting of a great artist, that painting is his glory. It puts his abilities on display. And what he's saying is because though man and women are both created in God's image, there's a sequence there. Man was created first. Man is the glory of God. You can look at sunsets. You can look at mountains. You can look at oceans and see the glory of God. But his greatest creation where God is most fully on display is in man because we're created in his image and then Paul goes on and says because woman was taken from man woman is actually the glory of man though that sounds difficult I think maybe this will help you understand it 
occasionally somebody will meet my wife before they meet me. And if you meet my wife before you meet me, you already think more highly of me than I deserve. Because they would look at her and say, oh my goodness, she is so high quality and high character and so spectacular, she must have a wonderful husband. And then they meet me and they're confused. And I explain, we got married really young. I play, it was a sneak attack, okay? So, so but it, that's what it's talking about, that my wife reflects favorably on me. That's kind of the context of how he's explaining this. And then he goes on in verse 10 and says, this is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Let me stop there. I just want to look at this phrase because of the angels because I actually think it's pretty fantastic. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verses 10 through 12. I'll put this verse on the screen. It says, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were, not, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So what, in essence, Peter is saying is he's saying when the Old Testament prophets wrote their prophecies about the coming Messiah, they didn't understand in their day the significance of what they were writing completely. One of the reasons that they couldn't understand back then was that after Messiah came, people would look back on what the Old Testament prophets wrote as validation that Jesus was exactly who he claimed. So as they were writing and they were talking and they were declaring the word of God, there was something greater going on than they even understood in their day. And what Paul is arguing here is he's saying, sometimes our God being creator and us not being creator, there are going to be things about which God um, asks us to do and what he declares to us that are beyond our understanding but it's serving even a greater purpose than we could imagine in this case speaking of salvation he says that's something that the angels long to understand now the angels have been around since the beginning of creation and if i understand angels correctly i believe even as we worship and gather today there are angels in our midst and they are observing our behavior and they are observing our conduct and they are looking at God's word and they're looking at whether we will submit or not and how we as humans respond to this incredible grace of God that's been given to us. So God is using this instruction beyond even what we can understand, but he's using it to communicate something to the angels. And I just think that's pretty awesome. Let's keep going. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent from man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now, our big idea was that men are both distinct and dependent. Now you're seeing that dependency explained by Paul. He is arguing that everything that he said in this discussion up until now is not meant in any way to diminish the value or the role that women play. We are distinct but dependent and then he says in verse 13, judge for yourselves, it is, pro uh, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Some have argued that throughout this entire um, text, hair is actually the covering that is referred to. Men and women's hairstyle changes throughout time. When I was younger, this is going to be hard for some of you to believe, but I actually wore my hair a little bit longer than I do today. I could get away with that. I was born in the late 70s, um, early 80s. Now, you need to know that when I taught last night, I didn't have a picture. 
This is one of the dangers of having your daughter in the room listening while you preach. She was able to produce this picture. So my hair, it's a little messy there, but that's about the length that I wore it. It was typically parted down the middle and feathered a little bit to the sides. I was influenced by the Leonard Skinner band in the Bee Gees. I'm a mess, okay? <laughs> so, so that was the generation that I grew up in. But at the Christian school that I attended, um, teachers carried rulers and they would measure the distance between a girl's skirt and her knee, and they would measure how far our hair hung over our ears. I mean, it was a big deal. And though hairstyles change, and though style changes, the principles driving the argument do not. Men and women, we are created with a distinction. And now please hear me. This is important for you to understand. The instruction that Paul's giving in 1 Corinthians 11, it is to the church. He's not trying to correct his culture. He's giving the instruction to the church. Now, culture is not going to agree with these distinctions. Actually, they're always trying to blur the lines. And our role as followers of Jesus Christ is not to instruct our culture on how they're supposed to behave. We are not asking uh, people who have chosen not to follow Jesus Christ to act and live like they're followers of Jesus Christ. There's clear instruction throughout Scripture on how we as followers of Jesus Christ are to interrelate with culture, how we're to deal with our neighbors. And the command there is to love your neighbors. The instruction Paul is giving here is for and in the context of the church. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about the symbol, the head covering, and how that operates in the church. But please understand, it is a symbol. There is a deeper principle driving the symbol of head covering. If I were here this morning and I was just meeting with a young couple who was about to get married, I, I would want to talk to them about marriage. I wouldn't spend all of the time talking about the wedding ring. And in the same context, in looking at 1 Corinthians 11, I think it's more profitable for us to understand what Paul is talking about as it relates to the distinctions that the Bible requires for men and women and how we come together and worship as a church. So let me talk about kind of a spectrum here. I'm going to have you put the next slide on the screen. There's a bunch of words there. There's feminism at one extreme and chauvinism on the other extreme and then you've got in the middle of this egalitarianism and complementarianism so i'm putting this slide up early because there's going to be a spelling bee at the end of the message and you guys are going to need some time these are tough words okay but i want to talk to you first about two dangerous extremes let's start with the idea of feminism and i'm going right from the merriam-webster dictionary let me define what it says it calls feminism the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities a feminist is someone who believes in feminism i hope that was helpful for you and and what i'm please hear me i'm not trying to define a movement with all of its variants and to all of its extremes. When I'm talking about feminism here, I'm talking about an approach to scripture, and a Christian feminist is someone who seeks to define and defend the equal rights of women in all spheres of life, politically, economically, socially, and spiritually. So they're saying, in all aspects of life, women should be treated, we're the same, we should be treated equally, have equal opportunity, and they're going to go in scripture to Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Their argument in looking at this verse is he's saying both men and women are created in the image of God, and that is true. Feminists would argue that men and women are equal without distinction. Furthermore, they would argue that any distinction or any differentiation in roles is about the oppression of women under the tyranny of men. Feminists tend to be skeptical of the Bible. They would view Paul in his writings in the New Testament, like this uh, chapter that we're working our way through now, 1 Corinthians 11, they would say that he writes from a chauvinistic viewpoint. They tend to argue culturally, not biblically, and they argue from pain and not from truth. So that would be one dangerous extreme. The other dangerous extreme would be chauvinism. 
And I would define chauvinism, again, just from Merriam-Webster Dictionary, an attitude of superiority toward members of the opposite sex and behavior expressive of such an, uh, an attitude. Chauvinism is the sinful distortion of the superiority of men that is argued from a biblical context through the Old Testament patriarchal system and chauvinists would look at a passage like 1 Corinthians 11 and say, see, there it is again. Because of verse 3, it's clearly teaching that men are superior. By the way, just as a side note, even as we talk about a distinction in roles, please understand we're talking about roles within the church. There are some in this room that believe that women are not gifted as leaders. Um, that is such a losing argument, I don't even know where to begin. And it's not an issue of abilities or aptitudes or qualities in any way. And the context and the idea of a woman in culture uh, being a politician, being a president, being your boss, all of those things are going to happen in scripture because we are equally created in the image of God. It's going to happen in culture, I mean. What we're talking about is in the church. The chauvinist argues that women are inferior and by the way that they're created, they were meant solely to serve. We believe that both feminism and chauvinism at our church push the argument beyond what the Bible in any way allows. Feminism is an overemphasis on women to the neglect of men. In essence, they're saying that men cannot be trusted. They always use their power to oppress and destroy. Those on the chauvinistic side of the scale are arguing similar. They say women cannot be trusted because they lack the ability to lead because men are superior. We denounce both extremes. And the idea that there is no distinction between men and women in spite of what our culture tells you, I'm telling you, it just ain't true. It just isn't true. And men, if you understand the history of the church and you understand how these type of passages have sometimes been used by men to devalue and oppress women, it should make you want to shake your head. Both of these, feminism and chauvinism, are dangerous extremes, extremes that go beyond what is taught anywhere in Scripture. So now, inside what I would call biblical views, there's an evangelical divide. Some churches are going to fall in one camp, some are going to fall in the other camp, and basically what they're arguing is from Scripture, how do we live out the truth that is in 1 Corinthians 11? Let me begin by describing a view that is known by theologians as egalitarianism. They gotta come up with a better name. But it's egalitarianism, and it is the idea that men and women created equally because of the cross of Jesus Christ have equal standing before God and all opportunities and roles and positions both outside the church and inside the church are equally available and open to both sexes. Please hear me. Egalitarians make their argument from the Bible. And they believe in the freedom of women under Christ, that without male supervision, they can follow their God-given callings and giftedness without exclusion. One of the things that they would believe is, again, back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, though we are created male and female, we are both equally in God's image. By the way, complementarians, we would agree with that. They argue that male headship is the result of sin. They read passages like Genesis 3.16. After Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and God pronounced a curse on women, he says in Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And the argument that an egalitarian would make, they say, see right there, that's where male headship was basically put in place by God. It's a result of sin. And because Jesus Christ through his death on the cross has freed us from the effects of sin in the church, male headship is no longer a valid argument. They would support this by looking at passages like Galatians 3, 28, where it says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Egalitarians point to passages throughout the New Testament where women played pivotal and critical roles in the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
Mary and Martha were two of the followers of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry that were part of the inner circle. This passage in 1 Corinthians 11, they point and say, see, women were prophesying and praying in the early church. In Philippians 4, we have women evangelists. And in Romans 16, Paul singles out Priscilla as a fellow worker in Jesus Christ. And by the way, as it relates to significant roles played by women in the New Testament, we agree with the egalitarians. We see the exact same thing. And egalitarians will tend to look at passages like we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 11, 2, or 1 Timothy 2, and passages that talk to an authority structure or a distinction within the church or within marriage, they would say those are trapped culturally in what was going on in the first century, and therefore they are not restrictive in any way in the church today. That is, in a very brief nutshell, the, italic, the egalitarian argument. And I need you to hear me on this because this is important. Most Bible teaching churches in our community fall within this camp. And the pastors of, that church, of those churches love Jesus and they're followers of Jesus and they are teaching faithfully from God's word, arguing from God's word. They just don't agree with where our church is on this issue. And please hear me, we think they're wrong. And that's okay because they think we're wrong too. And we can tease and we can have dinner and we can argue about this and it's not a point of separation in any way. And we can look at them and we can say, well, we can agree to disagree now, but when we get to heaven and you all agree with us, then everything's going to be worked out, right? <laughs> and they can say the same thing back to us, which is why this entire passage ends with verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. I'm not talking about an issue that needs to divide us, but I'm giving you the range of biblical viewpoints as it relates to the issue of men and women and the distinction of roles as we gather as the church. So let me move out of that sphere for a moment into the, a discussion on complementarianism. This is where harvest lands. This is what we teach. We believe that men and women are created equal in the image of God, but we are distinct yet dependent. We are equal in value. Genesis 1.26, both created in God's image, that is clear. We are equal before God as it relates to ourselves as persons possessing the same moral dignity and value. And we have equal access to God the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. There is no distinction in value. We are created equally male and female. Equal in value, but equal and distinct. In Genesis 2.18 says this, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone for I will make a helper fit for him. Now, in that verse, as God looks out at creation for the first time he says, where he's been saying up until now, it's good, it's good, it's good. He says, it's not good. What isn't good? That man should be alone. Okay, so in that declaration by God, who has the deficiency, man or woman? For sure, men, think about it for a minute. He looked at us by, by ourselves. He said, this is not good. <laughs> They're going to mess things up. We've got to get them a helper because of their deficiency. And so he created woman also in his image. This did not catch God off guard that we were putzes. Okay? He created woman to come alongside so that his husband and wife, man and woman, brothers and sisters in the context of the church, we can accomplish together everything that God has called us to accomplish. We are equal but distinct. And we are distinct but dependent. Again, this is so clear from 1 Corinthians 11, 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. Not only do we acknowledge this, we celebrate it. So we believe in equality, equal in gifting, equal in abilities, equal in value, equal in dignity before God. But we do believe that there's some distinctions. Why do we believe that? Man, it would be so much easier not to believe this. But here's why we do. Let me give you three arguments. The first is there's a biblical mandate concerning this issue. Paul makes 
no distinction in his teaching between men and women in regards to worth, abilities, intellect, or spiritually, but there are just passages in the Bible that is clearly prohibitive in regard to how we're to function when we gather together as the church. 1 Timothy 2 does not lack in clarity. It says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, as it describes the role of elder, which is the leaders or the shepherds in the church, it clearly describes in the description of elders that they are to be husbands of one wife, that they, by definition, are to be male. You can choose to agree. We can choose not to like it. But what is written is clear. And so how does this effectuate itself at harvest when we gather to worship? Women are valued and given full right to participate in every area that is not expressly limited by Scripture. And the two areas where we see that there are limitations according to the biblical mandate are in the role of elder and in the role of preacher on Sunday mornings when we gather together for corporate worship. Why do we believe that? Because of the biblical mandate. But it's interesting, the way that the biblical mandate is presented gives you a second argument, which is it is based off the creative order. Look at 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. Is that first on the screen? Put it back up there. It says, For I do not want a woman to teach, or I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And then it follows, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. You've got the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11, the passage that we looked at today. The argument for the different roles is not based. He's not making a cultural argument. Paul's not saying, I don't want to be um, disruptive of the culture. I want to go where the culture is, because that's really what Jesus did, right? He wasn't saying this is a cultural argument. He was saying it's a creative argument. And though we can argue about the symbol and how to apply it in our current context, you can't remove the principle and say that it was cultural because the Bible makes a creative order argument as it relates to the roles and the distinctions between men and women when we gather to worship. But listen, here's the main thing. And this is why I, I not only believe in the complementarian position, but I celebrate the complementarian position. The third argument, the biblical mandate, the creative order. But here's the important one. I believe the roles and distinctions when we gather to worship actually reflect on who God is and the very character and nature of God. We cannot argue on roles and distinctions solely based off a horizontal argument of how we're going to interact and get along. I believe there's something greater that God is trying to accomplish when he defined the different roles for our families and in our churches for men and women. It points back to the very nature of who God is. You understand that God is, exists as a triune God. There is a trinity. There are three members of the trinity the father son and the holy spirit and if you understand how the father son and the holy spirit interact what you would see is that from eternity past though all are equally god there are different roles and different authorities in the godhead jesus christ was sent to earth to do the will of the father says this in John 6 38 Christ speaking he says for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me over 30 times alone in the book of John Jesus says that he was sent from the father he was doing the will of the father that doesn't make Jesus any less God than God the father he is inferior to God the father uh, in no regard he is equal in value he is equal but distinct he is distinct but dependent. If Jesus had not submitted to the will of the Father, we would remain hopelessly lost. And if we do not submit our lives to Jesus, we yet remain hopelessly lost. The Spirit is sent by the Son to bear witness and to bring glory to the Son. It tells us in John 15, verse 26, but when the Helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 16, 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. 
for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit submits and gives glory to the Father and to the Son. The Son submits to the Father, all God, all equal. And in the triune God, we see submission. And I believe that God has designed the roles of men and women to be a reflection on who God actually is, his nature and character. You will never understand the roles until you get that. Which is why in the New Testament, the instruction is so clear as it relates to marriage. Ephesians 5 verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Throughout the instruction for husbands and wives, the picture is always back to who God is and what he's accomplished. It's always that way. And in the roles and the distinctions, trust me, when I talk about marriage and I throw out that word submit, women bristle under that concept. I get that. And please understand, one of the reasons that you bristle is because men have done such a horrible job leading. And for these roles to function properly in a marriage and in a church, it starts with a submissive, loving, kind, tender leadership. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And men, hear me. You are to lead in your homes and in your marriages in a way that the women in your family, your wives and your daughters can thrive flourish, develop all of their potential, study God's word, become godly followers of Jesus Christ using and gifted, all, all of their giftedness and abilities. That's the environment that God is asking you to establish in your home. And when you're committed to love your wife as Christ loved the church, it makes following your leadership much easier. But the reality is it's difficult on women because they've seen us fail in so many ways because of our insecurities. And please hear me. If I'm hitting a, a chord in your marriage or in your family, guys, you got to get on top of this because we're going to give an account. And the women that are entrusted to our care are to flourish under our leadership, not suffer or feel devalued or objectified in any way. Like in a marriage in the church, God, there's an order that God calls in the church for men and women to be equal, but distinct and dependent. So let me talk for a minute about what this means for our church. Let me put up another slide. This has got all the big words from before, but there's a line added to it. And you see where that line is? That's what we're trying to hit as a church. And if I've placed that line properly, it should be ticking off people on both sides of the argument. We want to be complementarian, convinced, and committed to that view, but we want to see the women in our ministry lead and flourish. We want to be as close to the egalitarian camp as we can while remaining complementarian. And I know some of you are like, whoa, don't go too close to the edge. You're going to fall off and you got no idea what happens then. The reason we're comfortable living close to the edge is we're confident in what we believe. And so let me explain how this is going to kind of flesh itself out in our church. I want to talk about what we, want to be what we believe. As we've been studying this for the last few weeks and meeting with the elders on this, we want to run by you some of the things that we want to be intentional. It's not a move in theology. We're not changing doctrinally what we believe in any way, but we want to make sure that what we are practicing and how we are living is in agreement with what we've already stated is what we believe. We want to get really intentional about adding women deacons. Now, some of you don't know this, but our bylaws have always, from the inception of the church, allowed for women deacons, but it just hasn't happened. So we believe in the Bible that it's clear that men and women can both serve in the office of deacon. And though the role of elder is restricted in biblical teachings just to males, we believe that men and women should both serve as deacons. I have no idea how this is practically going to work out. I remember the church I grew up had these deacons and deaconesses, another tough spell word. But, but what I would say is I, I'm assuming they're going to serve on the same board. But this is something that we've always believed, but we've never effectuated. 
And we want to see that change. One of the changes in the back is we've got a, a staff leadership team. And we were looking around the, we meet on Friday mornings at 9 o'clock, and as we looked around the room, it's only dudes. And that's a problem. And as we studied this passage and became convicted on that, we've added uh, Janelle Lopez to our leadership team. Do you know why we did that? Because she's a phenomenal leader. And she works with so many in the ministries and running the children's ministries. And the reason that we added her to our team is because we believe she adds incredible value and she adds a perspective that is lacking if she's not in the room. So that's an adjustment that we've made. A third adjustment that we've made in response to looking at this text is we get together on Wednesday mornings about a week and a half out from preaching and we discuss and break down the passage that we're going to go through. So not this Wednesday, but the week prior to this Wednesday, we met as a teaching team, the men that preach, me, Cal, and Ryan primarily, and then several of the other guys that were teaching how to preach. And we broke down the passage together and decided collectively on the direction that we were going to preach this in the two churches. Quite honestly, a week ago Sunday, I was really pushing for Ryan and Cal to teach this week, but I got outvoted. So I'm teaching this week, Cal is teaching at Grand Haven, and we've uh, intentionally, we're adding women into that room. Here's why we want their perspective as we break down passages. Just like we're trying to raise up men and we're trying to have different perspectives, we want a female perspective in the room as we look at a text, and we also want to be committed, just like we're trying to improve ourselves and the younger men and prepare them to teach, we want to be making the women at our church and equipping them to make them better teachers, and we believe by having them in the room, they're going to make us better teachers as well. So just understand, we're not just talking about this, we want to make sure that we are creating an environment at our church where women can thrive and flourish and use their giftedness to the full extent that we believe scripture allows. All the time in doing this, we want to see women lead and flourish. We want to remain faithful to God's word and design. We want to remain faithful to God's word and design. Okay. Now, I know because of the length of words and the charts and the graphs, this has felt a little bit more like a college lecture than a normal Sunday message. Here's why. We've got to get this right. We have got to land biblically where God would have us land as a church. And here's why. I'll give you three reasons as we close. Here's one. Our church needs this. Next week in 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to be talking about a concept that Paul introduces there that as we come together to worship, all of us bring unique giftings, unique needs, unique um, abilities and attributes. And when we gather as worship, any, any gifts and equippings that we have are to be used not just for ourselves but for the collective whole. And when we fail to do that, the entire body suffers. If, if one part of our congregation is hurting, that means all of us are suffering. And if women are not allowed to flourish and use their gifting to its fullest extent, we believe that we suffer under a system like that. So we believe that this is desperately needed in our church. Let me give you another reason. If you were downstairs here or in Grand Haven, you would be shocked at the number of children that come through this place. Shocked at the number of young lives. I have a, um, had a new grandson about 10 days ago. That gets me up to nine. I've got nine grandkids that attend this church and they're all ages eight and younger. The next generation desperately needs to see this model to them well. And they're not going to get it from the world. They're not going to get it from our culture. They better get it from our church. And I want the young girls and the young women and the um, teenage girls to be able to look across this church and see women flourish, lead, take responsibility, and say, man, that's a godly woman that I want to be like. And I want to see the young boys in this church impacted and affected by the lives of godly women. And I want them to see men treat women the way the Bible commands that we treat them. With love, dignity, and respect. And though the world may devalue and objectify, it's not going to be here. So I believe our church needs it. I believe the younger generation needs it modeled well. And here's the final thing. Our world desperately needs this. See, as followers of Jesus Christ, in every aspect 
of our lives, we should be reflecting. We should be a light that points people to the gospel. This is true in the choices that we make. This is true in the priorities that we follow. This is true in the identity, seeing ourselves as in Christ that we live under, and it needs to be exampled in the way that we worship together, uh, men and women together in the church. It should be distinct, different from the world, and they should look at it and go, man, that's weird. Why would people choose to do that? And we choose to do it because we are trying to reflect the very character, nature, and grace of God in everything that we do. So was that clear? I feel like I should be taking questions. But I don't want to. (laughs) So here's what I want to tell you. We're going to be up front. If you've got questions, you can come talk to us. I'm Chris Moeller is an expert on this topic. Just flood him, okay? (laughs) He he is so excited to talk to you about these things. But please understand, as a church, we're trying to do what God calls us to do, even when it's difficult. Let's pray. Father, even in a difficult chapter like this, I just want to pause for a moment and praise you for who you are. That you are a God that even when we were sinners, you chose to demonstrate your love to us by sending your son. And your son chose to humble himself. The creator becoming the created. Showing us the incredible love that you have for us, dying in our place so that we can be called sons and daughters of God. What an incredible thing. And Father, it would even be my prayer that as we assemble today and we talk about these things, that the things that we say would be honoring to you, that we would be faithful communicators of the truth of your word, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the heavenlies. And those who gather here with us, though unseen, Father, we love you. You are an awesome God. We lift your name in praise. Father, teach us to be faithful in all things. It's in your great name we pray.